iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ruck special. This week, there were two Rucks. Uh, the second Ruck involves just Stuart, Barnes, and myself alone in our studio. We're going to talk about a, a literary effort because Stuart's produced his new book it's called sketches from memory a rugby memoir it's published by polaris of edinburgh and it is a very very different book indeed as stuart says at the start it's got no beginning or no end it's got no beginning no end no sense of chronology <laughs> and he calls facts false gods false gods stuart you and i and our sub-editors have been desperately smashing down on facts for years it's all we ever do it's our whole raison d'etre and you say no facts are false gods in your book i'm saying that over a broader period of time steve when we're covering a game on a saturday night um then who did what in what time is a fact but when you are looking back over the broader spectrum of the game i believe we become obsessed with facts uh, in particular statistics and we lose our sense of feeling and i feel that what makes sport different from life is the fact it is a game and we can feel our way through it and, and by that it's a sense of emotion uh it's it's a, a visceral gut instinct to the game but surely a, a chronology is needed in any book because otherwise in the who who done it you're going to have the, the murderer phone before yeah. you've killed anybody. Well, I, I, I deliberately um, avoided a chronology because I feel so many sports books, um, and it's, it, you know, you're right, it's a memoir, it's not autobiography. So many sports books have the great moment at the end, occasionally a lower moment, although in autobiography they tend to be the higher moments, and I wanted to avoid that because... You know, it's it's not about me. I, I'm a protagonist that sort of walks through 40 years of rugby, which is my lifetime in the game. So what I'm trying to give the reader is a sense, almost a sort of a sense of history of, of where the game has gone uh, in, in a sequence of shards with me just being there on the inside, if you like, trying to explain. For example, you know, when I write a chapter about France... I'll do it from the sense of, of being against uh, Philippe Seller with Serge Blanco running at you in in the Parc de France and try and get in, give you an idea what that feels like. So you get an inner sense of what it is like to be a competitor, to be immersed in the game, but also the the broader journalistic sense because obviously I've I've been I've been writing and 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 
commentating an awful lot longer now than I have been playing. But I played, I think, at a, a reasonable enough level to still have a sense of the history of the game from the ground level. I, I think I to- where I do agree totally is that... Um the normal rugby book is is really in a in, in painful sequence and painful mm. chron- chronology because it starts off with your mum, then your school teacher, and all that, and it's very difficult to. It's an easy formula. Well, way it to is, do it, but it's it? difficult to get across to authors. Not don't start like that. Yeah. If you if you want to put that in, put it in, in the last chapter or so, or something. Like that. And it, it does work well. I have to say that I don't want to put anybody off with my intro because it does it does work extremely well. But you really have to. Uh, buy into what Stuart's doing in terms of the the philosophy of it and the and the rhythm of it. Do you do you, do you, did you enjoy writing the book? People said to me, I either hate it like I do, absolutely hate it, detest it, or did you love it? I I like writing more than I probably ever liked playing. It's uh, 105, 110,000 words. Your life, your subject. You think, well, you can't do anything but like it. But weirdly enough, I found it quite difficult the writing of it i enjoyed but i i felt that because i wasn't dealing in facts steve that i wasn't uh, googling or going to rugby books to see what date what time what person i was having to go a long way back in my own mind and and i did find sections quite difficult you know i, I wrote a section um about my school your school Baysleg. And or, or base leg, 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 and I it never crossed my mind that I was anything but the sort of rugby star head boy heading for Oxford. And I was thinking about it, and I started to realize why people who weren't sort of reasonably academic, who weren't sporting, might think, What a prat this bloke is! And this happened on a, a number of examples. I, I I delayed writing my chapter on Bath, the recreation ground, and I didn't know why. And then I got down to it, and I, I always thought that Bath for me was my spiritual home. The people, um, the fans, everything. And I started to write it, and I was wondering, was I actually going to Bath and trying to make it my sort of theatre, my, my plaything? I think by the end of it, I'd come out of it the right way. But these things worried me, and, and, and that sent me in a, in a slightly other direction as well, which is memory. This book has large sections about memory and the fact that you get to a certain stage in your life and you wonder, have I forgotten it or have I rewritten it? And when you're writing memoir and you start to think, is this a rewrite? It gets quite interesting and it also gets, not depressing, but, but alarming. And I must say... Um, I probably wrote six or seven drafts of it and I'd say by about draft three um, I was pretty down about myself and by seven I was thinking well there's probably other people in the world who've done worse things but it was not an easy write no but you, you, you were <coughs> famous every time I introduce you at a function I always say introduce you as Judas of course yeah but um, you did um, turn your back on what could be called the old country with Wales because you didn't really you didn't really lap it up you didn't feel like one of the, one of the valley boys ever but when you went to England uh, according to the book and for what you told me you didn't feel much like one of those either oh, uh, and then when you went to Bath you you were part of the greatest team they've ever had 
But actually, you used to fight people in the dressing room and afterwards as well. They, they, so you weren't actually that a, a bothered to fit, to fit in. Well, I think you were a team bloke, but I mean, you, did, you didn't bother. You know, you, you, you're almost saying that you hardly ever spoke to Jerry Guscott till he'd retired, sort, <laughs> sort of thing. So there's one common denominator in all this it's you. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Steve. And again, the, the, the other thing. Uh, and the common denominator within, which I, I think I found out in the writing of this book, was this fear of failure. And I could always, from the age of 11, make excuses. Uh, I was meant to be the fastest kid in school. First year at Bayes, leg or bizarre leg. We did the 100 metres on that old grass track, you'll remember. Mm. I deliberately slipped at the start out of the blocks of the 100 metres because then I'd have an excuse for losing. And by the time I got to Bath, I think I'd channeled it more. Um, but I think fear of failure may well have played a part in, in me getting so uptight about not getting picked for England that twice I quit. Um, fear of failure might have played a part when I got dropped by Newport for a cup tie against Swansea when I was 18 for saying hell with this and leaving. Um, and again, that's all part of what sort of person was I really? And, and you're quite right. I was the common denominator in all of those things. And it, again, I mean, I loved winning, but I was so scared of losing that I think that I and Bath, who were made for each other because Jack Rowell was an inveterate winner, I look back on it now and I think all those leagues and all those cups at Twickenham that we won, I'm thinking, had we had a little bit less fear, a little bit more ambition... We might have lost the odd game. We'd have probably won as many trophies and we'd have been an even better team. And mm. that was just one of those themes. And I, 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 when I read books and when I hear people talk about sport, I hear this thing, fear of failure drives. And I came out of this book thinking, it's nonsense. You have to take yourself beyond that. And, and I was one of these guys, when I stopped playing, I scoffed at psych, sports psychologists. I now wish to hell that Bath had had one when I was playing because I think that players like myself and a few others, it would have made us so much more positive. What I can't quite get from the book is that the famous stat where Rob Andrew got thousands of caps, you, you got, you got yeah. 10. You're saying that you now wish you'd, you didn't see anything in sports psychology. Do I detect in the book any growing anger with yourself that, yeah. you, that you didn't play the game that they wanted you to play? Yeah. By that, I mean you had to be a great mate of Jeff Cook, Roger Utley, Will Carling, the RFU. Uh, you, you, you couldn't be a sort of bath man who'd come up. You had, to, you had to embrace it all. Do you now wish you'd embraced it? Um, I, I, I couldn't do that, Steve. I mean, it's easy now, age 56, to say, I wish I'd kept quiet. I couldn't be that. I think the biggest problem, really, um, I, I wish I hadn't made it so obvious. Let's put it that way. Uh, but, but it was difficult, and it wasn't until um, you became part of the England setup you realised the sport, the cultural chasm that the Seven Bridge separated England and Wales. You know, I, I, I came from a culture where decision-making and playing with heads up with everything, and as a, as a Welsh schoolboy and someone who's in the Welsh squad, you never had big forwards in front of you then. You never had big forwards, so you had to be very quick of wit. And I think that explains the phenomena that is John, that is Bennett, that is Davis. You had to be quick-witted. And I'm not putting myself in that category, but I saw the game in that way. And I came to England 
And when the game went professional, in particular, England had all these great big forwards and they worked out that they could shut down teams like Wales. And what do you think about it, Steve? From 60 to 80, England could hardly beat Wales. When the game went professional, we had that incredible run, didn't we, for a Mm. while when Wales were getting hammered by England because England understood what they needed to do and that was play to their strength, which was the forwards. And what I do wish I hadn't done... Is it, that what Eddie Jones should be doing now? That, In my opinion, that's what he should still be well, doing. Well, Steve, to, their strength. To, to me, uh, Eddie Jones' finest, finest hour in England was when they lost, funnily enough, to New Zealand. But for 25 minutes, he had uh, runners, one off, and they battered New Zealand. And that's the way to beat the All Blacks, to take them on physically. Uh, and I think that's what England should be doing. Uh, I think a change in subject is why... Eddie would be mad not to look at someone like Alex Dombrandt because he has that capacity to come off the bench and change the game as a carrier. But my frustration wasn't the fact that I didn't keep my mouth shut and do it the English way. It's probably that I didn't recognise it and and it lent itself to an air of petulance because what I recognise now is, you know, I still think... and. This is not arrogant, because I'm certain if you ask Rob Andrew, he'd say, I was better than Stuart Barnes. If you ask Stuart Barnes, he's going to say, I'm better than Rob Andrew. That's just the competitive nature of the game. But what I didn't recognise was perhaps that where Rob Andrew was better than Stuart Barnes were the areas where England Mm. were at their strongest. Um, I feel, and I still think, that... Where England lost out was there was a lack of fluidity to their thinking. I think it cost them the 1991 World Cup. And I dress in the book how at a team meeting at the Petersham Hotel the night before a game, you get someone like Dick Best saying, right, we're going to win a line out here, we're going to throw it in the midfield, then what? And and I was called off the bench, so to speak, Mm -hmm. because I was a sub and said, what are we going to do? And I I said, well, what I'm going to do is look and see where the split of the defence is. And, and just said, about no, just we... about everyone, just about everyone in the team sort of laughed at me because no, haven't you been listening? I said, well, I've been listening, but I'm going to see where it is. And and to me, that summarised the issue, and to an extent, it still does. We're still not on a par with Wales when it comes to the intellect of the game, and that's why you see so many smart Welsh sevens and so few smart English sevens, because seven is that conduit between forwards and backs, and that's where intellect really comes into its own. I'm not sure whether Wales are now catching up in the over programmes, takes, but there we go. Let's just uh, go through one or two specific parts of the book. One, one chapter I thoroughly enjoyed was a, a sort of hymn you produced to the drop goal, mm. which I just can't remember the last time I saw one. Yeah. And I still can't believe, I mean, people say these days, they're, they're sniffy about, oh, no, that's old hat. Well, it's not old hat, because no, you, you can drop a goal, or you can get three points without the other team infringing and without getting anywhere near their line. It's the easiest three points going. Your hymn to the drop goal, you, you mentioned a few great ones, one of which you kicked yourself. And um, was that what, what was the motivation in that? Just the intrinsic, fantastic skillness of it, or people, or the fact that you're trying to bring it back? Um, I think it's a great art form within the game Um, I also wanted to do something that hasn't been done in a book form before which was take about four minutes of commentary quite literally Mark Mm. Robson and myself Mm. and go through that Nick Evans drop goal against Mm. 
Stade Francais, wasn't it? Which to me is the greatest concerted combination. I more than a drop goal, Steve. That drop goal in the mud when the forwards were just ploughing on was the most perfect uh, summation of why rugby is a great game. And it's not just about chucking it out to your wings and sprinting at 100 miles an hour. It's about being able to keep the ball, to be patient, to have the courage, to trust one another, and then your main man do it when it happens. And and Evans was a a very underestimated player. And I love that because that told me so much more about rugby. I I also... think the drop goal is a fascinating topic as you said people will say that's old hat people who say old hat are people who don't understand history and if you don't understand history be it in politics war or rugby union you don't understand the subject you're dealing in you know it will come back it's not that long ago that uh yanni de beer dropped five goals to beat england there were three points to say it's old hat when it's worth three points when it's 60 percent of a try when defence is so much better, uh, man for man, yet a drop goal remains even easier, perhaps, because the pitches are better, then it's sheer lunacy. And I wanted to celebrate the greatness of the drop goal, but also ask the question about why isn't it being done? And um, intellectually, why the hell are the people that are in authority in the game not saying, let's bring this down to one point because it's too damn easy so the drop goal for me steve was it was about history it was about a a wonderful moment because i really enjoyed the commentary of the nick evans thing because i was so into it uh some of the great moments but also some of the pitfalls that is the administration of rugby union which is a, a, a an inability to follow where rugby league goes which i touch on in a later chapter called up and under what um just one more thing about the drop call um and you talk about the motivation for one of your more famous ones when <laughs> you were basically towards the end of the cup final against uh quins you were you were down and the drop goal would have done it for you but you're a long way out mm. and a certain person next to you said look if you're not gonna if have a shot give me the give me give me the ball and i'll do it and so you kept it had a shot and won the game but but again doesn't that tell you one how wonderful rugby can be harlequins plotted this thing of beauty and I, in the chapter as well um and i had i had to do a rewrite because uh it was off with the publishers before last year's six nations started i then came back and did fairly substantial rewrites the johnny sexton drop goal a thing of orchestrated beauty then you compare it with the bath harlequins when we were 100 minutes into it and i was absolutely knackered and you're quite right uh, I, I wanted to go with an up and under. I wanted Phil de Glanville to chase it because Jerry Guscott never chased balls. It was beneath mm. him. And it was Jerry who, hands on hips, I said, chase this kick. And he said, no. And I said, just chase it, Jerry. He said, if you ain't got the balls to go for it, <coughs> I will. At which point, Jerry knew what my ego was like. So I said, well, sod you, Guscott. I'll kick it. It got over. And that was typical of Jerry. Jerry was also, uh, may I digress briefly? Jerry was very important to me um, because we started off. Jerry wanted to be Bath fly half. Horton left. I came. He couldn't stand this, uh, what he thought was this uh, upstart Oxford bloke who was quite young, so it was going to ruin his chance of being the Bath fly half. And I think on his stag night, we, we ended up brawling in some Bath nightclub. Um, with, with Jerry, that well, was. With, with Jerry, Jerry, Jerry yeah. and myself. And there were not many yeah. first teamers there, and I couldn't understand where are all the first team. What I've understood about Jerry is Jerry stayed true to his old mates, and I mm. loved him for that. He only invited me because he wanted a fight. 
and that broke the ice uh, and Jerry became very important uh, in my sporting life you know there's the drop goal which was you know famous in, in, in certainly in, in Bath history but he did a big thing for me because uh, he probably got me in this very room today because I wanted to have uh, we were I, I was in retirement from England my, my second Greta Garbo leave me alone moment we were training at the wreck and it was uh, sorry at Lambridge and it was muddy something happened and the ball came back to me on my left foot and I dropped a goal from about 30 metres flew through the post been training at Bath because Bath was like my fiefdom and I was absolutely confident in everything I did Jack had made me his sort of emissary on earth I sort of said well of course I can do that and, and Jerry turned to me and he sneered in that Jerry way and he said it's a pity you can't do that when you're not in your own backyard at Bath. Why didn't you ever go with England? <clears throat> well, these are the two uh, close friends. Um, you two can wreck your own stag day by, by having Barnsley come and beat you up at it. So that, that was a good... I, I enjoyed that chapter too. You're listening to The Wreck. We'll be back with Stuart Barnes, author, in a minute. As you're listening to me... Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. And welcome back. You're not very... um, You can be very annoyingly non-effusive... Barnsley, um but you do confess um, in in the book to several love affairs. One is the drop goal, or one I should say is with Mrs. Um, Mrs. Leslie Barnes. I should mention that in case she reads it. Well, she, she is an acknowledgement, Steve. Will, will, yeah. she, will she read it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, we better. She, she won't read it. I hope, she, I hope she, you've remembered to put it in there. Uh, it's it's in there. Don't okay. worry. She's she's read certain chapters and has actually okay. thought I was a little bit hard on myself. Okay. 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 Well, some of us would have enjoyed that. <laughs> um, but but you know who who would be more lovable, unlovable from the outside than Gareth Chilcott, uh, a man with a, a checkered career in on the pitch and in the nightclubs, you could say. Um, <clears throat> You'd only have to sort of say a word to him on a rugby field, and he'd lay you out, sort of thing. That I think that's fair. Hello uh, would do to get hello, flattened. Hello yeah. would do, yeah, and goodbye. Um, but you uh, were warmer about Coochie, as we call him, than almost anyone in the book. So one of rugby's greatest characters, and even your non-chronological, um, even the way you tried to do the book, you couldn't stop your affection for the bloke coming through. No. Um, and, and again, I, I don't like. I don't like this. Oh, rugby is a game for all shapes, all sizes, people from all walks of life. But they're, they're, I, it's hard to believe any other sport where this sort of monster from Bedminster and this prima donna from um, from Oxford University would end up being such good mates. Um, but I guess Bath had a role to play as well as rugby in that we both were absolutely uh, driven and obsessed with victory. Uh, we're both, uh, I think most people know us, people with fairly um, sardonic tongues might be the right words, Steve. And we would we would lash each other. Um, but 
I respected hugely what he could give me as a fly half and I and and Coot certainly liked the fact that the fire and the fury that that he stoked up with the likes of John Hall would mm. actually turn into something because of, of, of the ability to make decisions this is what rugby is all about um the other thing that I, that I find so fascinating about Gareth is just the the vast hypocrisy of rugby sometimes. He is one of the game's great characters. He is one of the lovable characters. But all these great and lovable characters, they tend pretty much to be people who have been in the front five. And a lot of the lovableness about them, Steve, when we go to rugby dinners, is the roguishness. Mm. You know, I touched the whole Willie John McBride. I went to South Africa and I trashed every hotel. And the boys in the city lap it up. If it was a footballer doing this... It would be tutted and scorned and a disgrace. But in rugby, even though now, you know, nobody throws a punch, everyone just grabs the jersey mm. and, and they just threaten and there's nothing mm. else. Mm. There was a period, there was a time when the people who were loved were the Chilcots, the Jason Leonards of this world. And they were loved because they were nefarious and more often than not got away with it. And so when I hear colleagues in the media, when I hear fans, when I see young players saying, you know, this game uh, has to be absolutely clean, I sort of think, OK, it needs to be clean, but that's not to say that we should be so politically correct as to admit that the fans who come love the intimidation, they love the physical violence of it. And to me, Steve, I think, and I think I touched on it in that Chilcot chapter, Everyone, they, they love to punch and they love to stamp. And, and and we as players understood there was a certain level. If you got your back raked, fine. If you got stamped in the head, you know, even if it was my best mate Chilcott, you'd be saying, what the hell have you done there? But now all of that has gone and it's been replaced with, a, I think, a legalised violence. It, it's almost like the Coliseum. And when you stop and look back at it, and, and, and you're going to get berated for saying it, but I think that that's slightly out of control... Um, fiery punching and the odd boot um, made the game less damaging than this legalised violence now. What? Let's just talk about um, <clears throat> the, the writing and, and journalism. You're, you've obviously put a heck of a lot of time into this um, in terms of the way you're going to do it. Mm. And it is very, very singular. Um, you also talk, use the phrase, the wilderness of freedom in the book, which is Partly, I think, um, the philosophy that, that you live by. But the wilderness of freedom, is that also um, uh, come from or is part of that you found in being a columnist? Because there is certainly a wilderness of freedom, but being a columnist, you, yeah. have, to, you have to have done it by a certain time. You have to have done it not, not the same as someone else has just filed it and all that sort of stuff. But it is, it is a wilderness because... To come up with five ideas a week as you do is is a freedom, but it's, but it's a, it's a real um, prison sort of freedom. Mm. It really is. Well, I think I think we live in an age when people are encouraged to be herd-like in whatever we do. Um, and when I write wilderness of freedom, I don't think it's easy to be truly free to say and believe what you want to do. And I love being a columnist for the simple reason that if I, 
People say to me, oh, um, you're being controversial. I, I honestly would say I haven't deliberately been controversial, or not very often in my life. I try and find something different that I believe in, and it irritates the hell out of a lot of people, and you know that better than me, Steve. But to be um, as much on your own as you can be and to, to have your own independent views... Um, I find it invigorating. I don't want people saying, oh, well done, we agree with you. It's a danger of broadcasting. And my chapter on television, I'm very concerned that ex-players come along and we're all part of the same gang of, uh, uh, of hey, it's all about rugger. We don't, we don't broadcast. You shouldn't write for players. You should write for the intelligence of the viewers. And that's what I mean by a wilderness of freedom. And the easy thing to do is to go into the prison of just conform uh, of conformity. First, first of all, though, just go back a little bit, and then we'll come on to what you're saying. That you do wind people up. Okay, I, yes. I do. So you, you do wind people up, and um, you 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 can be contrary, but isn't that what the game is all about? Yeah, and providing you're not savaging someone either with inaccuracies or on personal yeah. lines. I'm afraid if you're not doing that. Well, you couldn't sleep at night. What's the point being a columnist? No, there's not. And th no. There's absolutely none. I, I, you know, there's a golden rule, I think, which is to avoid the personal. I don't know what anyone gets up to in their lives, and I couldn't give a damn. But what they do once they take to the field of play, that's different. That's Stephen Jones and that's Stuart Barnes terrain, and that's our job. And our job is not to be nicey-nice and to say, come on, Barnes, you, you played for Bath. Why are you giving so-and-so stick? Why aren't you being nice to the club? That is not the point at all of this. And um, and I do relish it. I relish it because it's a job that forces you to think independently. And, you know, as I say, this takes me back. And this is why the book, Steve, couldn't have chronology, because there's, there, there's a link between my frustration at, at crossing the Seven Bridge and becoming an English international without freedom when I could have stayed and probably should have stayed and remained a Welshman who played with freedom. So I, 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 I found in the writing of this book very interesting the various themes, uh, they're, they're sort of life themes, aren't they? Mm. Be you a journalist or be you a sportsman. And that was my point about being someone who is a protagonist within the game, but someone also who's outside it writing about it. Do you, um, um, uh, how do you measure the success or otherwise of ex-players who've come into the game in any form of journalism. I mean, I, 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 for instance, say someone like Sam Warburton, who immediately has found his stride and is not um, being sick-making with former mm. colleagues. Okay, he's not, you're not savaging them, but that's fine. Uh, but you've also got another lot who appear to think that uh, even though they think they're journalists, they will criticise any journalist who offers an opinion because they haven't <laughs> got any. Yeah. Now, does that piss you off? Because it pisses me off sometimes. I... I when I, I was very fortunate when I joined Sky, and, and people might scoff at this, when I joined Sky a quarter of a century ago, I was very excited because they paid more than I'd ever been paid. Um, but I was worried because I was afraid that people would say, right, you know, you've got to be nice about the game. It's never been in my nature to be nice about anything. If someone's good, I'll say you're great, and I love someone, but I ain't going to be nice for the sake of it. And it was to my happy amazement that Sky uh, gave a brief 
to be serious about sport. And I, and I think that was certainly the case with their football. And they said to us that the rugby department, you know, be serious about this. And I always believe that you've got to be serious. If you deal on something that is frivolous, you have to take it seriously. And, and Steve, what we do, it is only a game. If you can just mess around and be light-hearted about something that is a diversion, what the hell are we doing in our lives? So that really, really bugs me. And I feel now we are at another stage of sport. And sport now is competing not just football against rugby, against cricket, but against come celebrity come dancing or something. And there's this constant rush towards being entertaining and I am concerned that uh, in broadcast in particular um, it's become about entertaining and, and not enlightening I think you've got to enlighten people if you're an ex-player not just say hey our product's great all the time I understand why it happens there's a pressure commercially to do so but I think it belittles the game and after a while you know it will be um, something supported by people who just want 48, 47 matches because that's all they're being told. And the game is better than that and it deserves more than that. And just hope that all the youngsters who feel like um, becoming sports reporters, you keep pushing ahead, boys and girls, and uh, you'll get there. We've, we've been talking about Sketches from Memory, a rugby memoir by Stuart Barnes, published by Polaris in Edinburgh. And just as I said at the start, it's got no beginning, no end. No sense of chronology. He calls facts a false god. So I'm just going to go upstairs now to see Derek Clemens, <laughs> our chief sub-editor, and I say, Derek, will you stop changing those facts so they're correct? Because they're false gods, obviously. Stuart, people will lap up your book. What are the, your favourite books that you've read? Rugby books, we're talking here. Yeah. I mean, they are in a minority. I think the other thing that's really important, Steve, if, if, if you talked about boys and girls who want to become sports journalists... First of all, read. Yeah. Uh, one or two ex-players said, what do I do to, to do what you do? I said, well, you've got to read. I said, I don't really like reading. I'm not very interested in language. I said, well, you're struggling. And I've got to say, I, I've got a real thing against... I, I, I'm not a big fan of ghosted columns. I believe in authenticity. And I mm. think if you don't write it yourself, and that applies yeah. with autobiographies if they're not written themselves there's a slight weakness in that it's it's second hand and that's why when I, when I come to my five favorite rugby books yeah um uh, none of them are ghosted just I just go through your five and okay um i like um i really enjoyed the grudge um two two votes for the grudge already Tom by, by Tom English. Tom English. He's what two votes for Tom English by Tom English or me no, and no, you? No, no, no. We've both voted for I, Tom English. It's, yeah. a wonder, it's a wonderful book. Really like that. That's the book about the nineteen ninety Cal- the Grand, Grand Slam, Slam that was for Scotland and wasn't for England. Yeah, okay. Real life energy. Yeah. Very different as well. Yeah. A plug. I'm going to say Smelling of Roses, which was my first book, an autobiography. <laughs> now I say this not because it was a thing of great art, but the first book of yours that you see on a bookshelf when it's up for sale, I'm sure you think the same, Steve, is a thing of beauty if you like work, if you like writing. So I, I love that. Um, I'm going to say Endless Winter, 
by your good self. Well, you had to say that because I was one going to have you on the show. I know that it wasn't okay, going to go right. to air, but it's 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 a fantastic book, and again, it doesn't pull punches. It it, it gets to the roots of what rugby is about. And then my last tin, uh, one by the late great Frank Keating, mm-hmm. the great number tens. Um, I do not get a chapter, but I do get a mention, um, and I'm compared to a line from a T.S. T.S. Eliot poem. So, thanks, Frank. And then my bolter is a book that was given to me by my great friend, mentor, and one of the world's finest coaches of them all, Brian Ashton. He gave me this book and he said, Stuart, don't worry about the date of it, just read it and think about it. And it was an old book called King of Rugger by Lewis Jones, Welsh rugby union star who Mm. I believe Steve went north. And Brian said, read this and get a feel for the game. And on that note, you know, Brian said, feel for the game. And that's why my book is about a feel for the sport and not the facts. It is indeed. My, my five, just for, just, to, just to wrap up, Stand Up and Fight by Alan English about the Munster victory over New Zealand. Oh, the yeah, Grudge. Great. Yeah, that's great. Goodbye to Glory by Terry McLean. And very, very recently, Seven's Heaven by Ben Ryan, which is absolutely magnificent. Thank you so much for staying with us today. We'll be back on Monday. Uh, The big stuff's getting closer and closer. Please stay with us. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.